0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. My guest today is Professor Jamal Green, who is the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Uh, He clerked for Guido Calabresi um, on the Second Circuit and for Justice Stevens on the Supreme Court. He graduated from Harvard College and Yale Law School. He's written more articles um, than you can uh, imagine, including one called "The Selling of Originalism," which has had a huge influence on, on my work. And his new book. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll hold it up if I can somehow. Uh, his new book is "How Rights Went Wrong: Why Our Obsession with Rights Is Tearing Us Apart." Jamal, welcome to Supreme Miss.
1: Thank you, Eric. Good to good to be here.
0: So I I have reviewed your book for Constitutional Commentary. It should be coming out. I don't know who knows when, but sometime soon. Um, I, I love this book, even if we disagree some about the solutions. Uh, it is such a wonderful book. So, so why don't we start with why is our obsession with rights tearing America apart?
1: Sure. So I, I think the, the main thrust of the book is trying to reconcile the presence of rights and the importance of rights, which I very much believe in with the fact of, of pluralism, the fact that we are all very different from each other, have different values and commitments. And I think sometimes we tend to think about rights as if you know, we can all sort of protect our rights all the time and, and they're not gonna conflict with each other. And if they're just rightly understood, then you, you eliminate conflict, but but rights are, are inherent uh, inherently um, support and are consistent with conflict. Uh, and so I think the job of those of us who uh, adjudicate rights conflicts or or try to resolve them is to try to manage the conflict. And I think too often, we, instead of doing that, we try to essentialize the rights and sort of figure out who has rights and who doesn't. And that tends to be polarizing, it tends to distort rights in all kinds of ways, because we, 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 um, we essentialize them. And then we have to kind of pull back on that, when we recognize that they can't be pushed as far as we'd like. Uh, and so I, I'm trying to call for uh, ways of 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 kind of mediating among rights and reconciling them, and thinking of some strategies for doing that instead of kind of essentializing them or thinking of them as almost absolute.
0: One of the many questions, important questions, I think your book raises um, upon reading it is how much are um, how much of America is being torn apart by the Supreme Court's determination of rights. Uh, or how much the supreme court's determination of rights is polarized by our other factors outside the court's control um is it kind of a chicken and egg thing i don't i'm not sure where you totally come down on that um question
1: yeah it is a it is a chicken and egg problem uh that i and i don't i don't deny that i uh, i i think one thing to be clear about is that look we we are divided and polarized in all kinds of ways and th- there's nothing about, you know, notwithstanding whatever the publisher might say, um, there's nothing about reading this book that's going to, you know, undivide us or unpolarize us. The problems are, are way deeper than how, you know, courts think about rights or even how the rest of us think about rights. It, it's, it's a very complex set of problems. I do think that that courts aren't helping. Uh, and I do think that there are any number of ways in which we can observe the way that courts model the thinking about rights and the way they actually resolve particular controversies that tend to, 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 to push us into our corners rather than bring us together. And, and you know, judges are an important part of civil society. They're an important part of government, of course, and uh, they can act as models um, and they can um, uh, uh, they, they actually have a, a bit more institutional respect built up. Than a lot of other institutions, so I I think there's a lot of money on the table that's being left by the way we think about rights. It's not going to solve everything, and it's not the the source of all our problems. And certainly courts are are influenced by the way we think about rights too. So it it is it's a dynamic kind of process. Uh, but uh, but there are, there are ways we can do better, and that's sure. what the book is really focused on.
0: So one of the the most fascinating and interesting parts of your book, and by the way, I want to say this book is accessible to the most elite law professors there are, lawyers, um, informed non-lawyers, really everybody can read this book and, and really get something out of it. And one of the most fascinating parts of this book to me is how you talk about judicial review, how courts act, In other countries. And Justice Roberts, I think, did you a big favor in the the Dobbs argument last week, and we'll get to that, by talking about other countries and abortion, and we'll get to that. But before we do, um, other countries do do it quite differently than we do. I don't mean in terms of term limits and structure. We can talk about that. But how they deal with rights is different in Germany and and other countries. Um, and, And I think you say a lot of interesting things about that. What do you want the listeners to understand about how we do it compared to how they do it?
1: Well, the, the, there's an approach and, I, you know, there, there's a way of talking about this that really gets into the weeds uh, and gets really very legalistic. And there's a, there, there's a way of talking about this that's a little bit more accessible. And I, I do appreciate that the, you're noting that the book is designed for everyone, yes. not just for lawyers. Yes. Uh, so the the, the the more accessible version of, of the, the argument is that when we, when we see a rights conflict, but there's a couple of different ways we can think about that conflict. Right. So let's say it's a conflict between, you know, someone who uh, doesn't want to get vaccinated and someone who thinks that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting sitting in New York City where a vaccine mandate for private businesses has been has been announced. Right. Uh, we can think of, of that dispute as we have to figure out if you have a right to not be vaccinated. Right. And if you have a right to not be vaccinated, then the government probably can't vaccinate you unless it's some kind of emergency or, or require you to be vaccinated unless there's some kind of emergency. And if you don't have a right to be vaccinated, then the, the government can do whatever it wants. They can, you know, make you be vaccinated against anything. Um, and uh, for any number of reasons, our our law, American law, has sort of tended in that direction. It's like the the, the job of the decision maker is to figure out, do you have that right? And we're going to figure that out by looking at the the text or we'll... Maybe there's some authoritative precedent in the past that tells us the answer to that question, uh, or maybe the founders can tell us uh, we can use originalism in some way, uh, depending on what what your jurisprudential stripes are. But the other way of thinking about that question, and the way we the way if you took it out of the sort of domain of courts and law, um, is to not think about sort of legal abstractions like is there a right to something. You'd you think about well why is the government doing this? You know, how burdensome is it to impose a vaccine mandate on someone? What are the arguments that someone's making about the costs uh, associated with them? Is there something the government could do to respond to the problem that doesn't require this interference with how people understand their particular interests and entitlements? We're all gonna answer those questions a little bit differently because we're all different from each other. and We're gonna argue about the answers to those questions. But those are the right questions to ask if we're talking about the justice of a vaccine mandate, like what James Madison thought about (laughs) vaccine mandates is not the question one asks. If one is trying to figure out, is this a just government policy or not? Um, The kinds of the questions that I think, and I think rights really are about justice, right? So I think we, we should not abstract ourselves away from that fundamental truth. Uh, And so there are a bunch of questions you can ask that that go right at questions of benefits and burdens and reasons and motivations. And other countries tend to develop their law around those kinds of questions, as opposed to the question of, do you have a right? Do you have a right just doesn't get you very far in answering the kinds of questions that most of us disagree about. We all agree that you have certain basic rights. And that those rights have limits. So let's talk about those limits rather than talking about whether you have a right or not. That's just not a very interesting question usually.
0: So one phrase you, you use throughout the book, um, proportional judicial review, is I think how other countries kind of viewed that. Can you kind of explain that? in, a, in a, I know you could take three hours to explain <laughs> that, but can you explain that in a quick kind of way?
1: Yeah. So so proportionality is the is, and I don't want to I don't want to to overly you know praise you know the canadian or the german approach they have they have their issues as well sure. right but the general um, theory of proportionality approaches rights through a kind of structured balancing so that, where you, you ask a series of questions is there a right um, and that's usually an easy question proportionality jurisdictions tend to um, have an expanded understanding of the various things that count as rights right. and and the reason they have an expanded definition is because that doesn't really answer the interesting questions, right? So the interesting questions then are, well, is there, what's the government trying to accomplish? Is that something they legitimately are able to, to try to accomplish? So in our, my vaccine example, public health, okay, that's a legitimate objective. Is there a basic means-ends fit relationship, proportionality, in a sense, between the means and ends? Um, is, is, is this vaccine requirement uh, directed at public health would be the, 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 the way you'd answer the question in my hypothetical. Um, and, and that's usually a pretty easy thing to pa- for the government to pass, too. In most jurisdictions that use proportionality, there's two other questions that are harder for the government typically. So the first is, is this the least restrictive alternative? Uh, and we, we recognize this in American law um, as uh, something like a component of, of an intermediate or strict scrutiny test. Right. Um, are there other things the government could do that would accomplish its objectives without interfering with rights? <laughs> Um, and and that's that question is asked a, across a very wide range of, of problems and, and and disputes so in that sense it's it's actually more favorable to rights in in that sense than um, than than typical american law is and then there's a kind of a final test which is a kind of in in uh, in other countries and this is basically every other country every other advanced <laughs> democracy um, uses proportionality analysis in some form or another so the us is really the the, the 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 exception here, but the the last question is what's often called balancing in the strict sense, which is to say, how much is this government policy contributing to solving the problem the government's trying to solve in relation to how costly it is to the person, who it's you know you shouldn't use a, a nuclear bomb to squish an ant, right? <laughs> even if even if it's the least restrictive. And I means. hate ants too. I hate them. Yeah. Even if the only way you can kill the ant is to destroy everyone else. Uh, <laughs> And even if it's totally legitimate that you you get to destroy that ant, um, you know, if you're using a nuke, then you can't do it, right? So, um, so there's a there's a final balancing um, um, that 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 is typically considered to be part of the proportionality test. So, it's a balancing of a sort, but it's a it's a kind of balancing that happens across a very wide range of disputes. So, it's actually more judicial involvement in a sense, but judicial involvement is is never quite gets to the point of, of, you know, once you declare a right, that means the government's got to win, right? We really have to ask questions about what the government's purposes are. Um, is it basically being reasonable? It usually has some deference to legislatures baked in, right? right. Because a lot of these kinds of questions are, are basically empirical questions or questions that rely on, on data or, or you know, reasonable inferences or judgments that you can make about data uh, and you know you don't want courts and legislatures to be you know to to be you know substituting for each other there right but but it's you know you might think of it if you're for you lawyers out there a kind of broad based intermediate scrutiny of a sort
0: right um so an observation and then a question i I hope this observation makes you happy i I, don't, I will find out um reading through your book uh, it really did many parts of the book reminded me of Justice Stevens, who I by the way think is one of my favorite. Justices and who you croaked for. Thank you. <laughs> one of the, that's a compliment. Good. Um, one of the things I think that was so wonderful about Justice Stevens um, was his ability to get past legal formalisms, the kind of you were talking about, and get to the heart of the matter. Um, some of my favorite dissents in constitutional law are from Justice Stevens, for you lawyers out there, and uh, the Pennhurst case, I think his dissent is brilliant, um, and, and there are many others like that. Um, And so my my question is, I guess, how much did he influence you? And then the second part of that question is whether your knowledge of him or you personally. Are courts supposed to – if we're going to do the kind of balancing you suggest in this book, are are courts supposed to take into account their perceptions of public reaction, their perceptions of what the public will will tolerate or wants or doesn't want – um which which legislation should do right but i'm not sure courts should do so i guess those are two different questions but they i think justice stevens wrote in a way that was incredibly anti-formalistic without doing the second thing and i'm just wondering what yeah. you're thinking
1: um so so good i and i don't know that i know the answer to either of those questions okay. but i'll give a stab at it so <laughs> uh, so on 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 influence i'm sure i was influenced by justice stevens yeah. in part i i wrote a, an early piece fact that I've I've written many pieces about Justice Stevens uh, over the years, um, which is what happens when you clerk for for someone and then right. you're an academic. Um, but uh, I, I think the second of those pieces was a piece right at his re- was right around his retirement um, called the Rule of Law as a Law of Standards. Yeah. Um, and it was a re- essentially the title is a play on a well known article by Justice Scalia uh, called the Rule of Law as the Law as a Law of Rules, in which Justice Scalia defends his very rule-oriented approach, and I was trying to say that you can have an approach to law that is based on non-formalism, on kind of developing standards over time, and that that doesn't mean that it, that it, you know you're not acting within the rule of law. Right? It doesn't right. It doesn't mean that um, that you're lawless. Um, that there there are ways of thinking about standards rather than rules in a structured way. Uh, and proportionality is trying to do that. And Justice Stevens himself never endorsed proportionality. Justice Breyer has done it on many occasions, but Justice Stevens never did. Um, but I recognize in a lot of his jurisprudence a consistency with uh, with that kind of analysis. I, I think of, and maybe you're thinking of as well, his concurring opinion in Craig versus Boreas, uh, yes. which is the case announcing intermediate scrutiny for for sex discrimination. Where he says, you know, I I think that you know, sex discrimination is usually a problem, um, but it's not it's not that we should you know apply these you know very specific tests based on what kind of discrimination is at issue. We have just you know, there's just one equal protection clause, and you it just applies to say don't you know government don't do unreasonable things. Uh, and I, I'm very sympathetic with that that approach, and I'm sure I was influenced by it. Um, the reason why I, I, I hesitate a little bit is because of something that the other judge I clerked for, Guido Calabresi, uh, told me recently um, after reading the book. And he said, you know, this book comes out of a case that we had when you were a law clerk. <laughs> and I, I had, and Guido is a brilliant guy, and um, he's, he noticed something that I had not noticed, which is, I think he's right about this, that there, there was a case we had. And this was on the second circuit where it was a, a bunch of a police off a couple of police officers and firefighters who had participated off duty in a in a, a labor day parade in which they um acted out some racist um, tropes and stereotypes and they were punished by uh by the mayor basically um for for they were eventually fired and and they brought a first amendment challenge right. saying you know we're allowed to. To engage in, in speech on a matter of public concern, you know, we're really talking about race and and so forth, uh, and uh, and and that raises the question of you know do, when you think about freedom of speech, do you just say they're exercising their free speech and therefore you know the highest possible standard applies to government um, um, interference with that right, or do you kind of start with the question of well these are police officers uh, and firefighters who have a particular role in the community, and so we always have to kind of, uh, kind of temper how we think about free speech, based on, you know, on, on someone's role, um, within society, uh, and and so thinking about the the difficulty of wrestling with those questions, I think, really did start with that, that case way back when.
0: Yeah. That's, um, go ahead.
1: But on your your second your second question, yeah. um, on public opinion, I I have mixed feelings about this, and I, I I've. I think if you were to read all of my work, you would see the, the mixed feelings um, uh, coming through because I think I say some things over the course of my of my work that is they're not always consistent with each other, right? So I, I do think that judges, you know, when when you're talking about public law, you're not just talking about you know a contract dispute between you know Jack and Jane over Blackacre, right? You're right. you're talking about about, you know, when judges decide constitutional cases, they're just making they're making the law for the country. Um, as you've said many times, like the Supreme Court's not a court. And <laughs> thank you. It's for that. not a, it's, And that's that's right. It's not a court in this in the same sense in which, you know, you, you and I might go to the to a court over our contract dispute. Right. It's a it's a court in the the, the Kelsenian sense of a constitutional court when it when it decides public law cases. Right. So it is making law not with notwithstanding whatever you might hear at a confirmation hearing um, it's it's indisputably making law because it makes prospective rules for governing society more generally uh, and and so insofar as it does uh, you know it's got you've got to pay some attention to public reaction to the rules that you create because you're governing a society in a democratic society and you know we're not a country that amends our constitution very often uh, and so it gets built out over time by by court decisions by decisions of others as well. Paying no attention whatsoever to public opinion seems to me to be wrong. Um, that you know, you've got to pay some attention to the society that you're governing. But at the same time, that can't mean um, you're putting your finger to the wind and being influenced by whatever the polls say. You've got to find, you know, there's some middle ground between I'm just a, you know, I, I'm a politician who listens to my constituents and uh, I am a judge who develops principles but does, do, doesn't does do them purely abstractly, but does them in a way that um, is attentive to the society that they come from. And I think there is a way of navigating that, but it's hard.
0: So it's interesting. Uh, you and I are frequent visitors to the San Diego Originalism Conference run by uh, the San Diego Law School and Mike Rappaport and Mike Ramsey, other people. Um, and uh, I think if, if if we suggested at that conference that public opinion has a role, I mean, maybe, maybe you're not... Know, Small, medium, whatever, they would lose their lunch, you know, and yell at us and scream at us for a very long time, and say no. Constitutional interpretation is supposed to be about text, history, precedent, and and you no, know, the more sophisticated one or the more honest ones would say also there's there's a space for consequences maybe, um, but but it's not a, it's emphatically not the duty, quoting Mar, uh, Murray versus Madison, emphatically not the duty of the court. To say what public opinion is, and I've always thought that's really naive because they come from you know these these aren't strangers who came here from another land looking at us objectively. They are part of the public and they've been raised in a certain public milieu that makes that almost inevitable. Do you think I'm wrong? About, is that fair? Uh,
1: I I think it is inevitable for the constitution that we have. Yeah. Uh, I think if we had a different. You could imagine a, a different constitution to keep to keep with the the quotes of John Marshall. You know, if we had a if we had a legal code, right, right, right. And, and it it was just you know we we're going to list all of the powers of the government, and we list all the rights of the government. And if it doesn't fit squarely within the very specific things we've listed, we're going to list a thousand rights that you have, right? And we're going to list the and we're going to at the specific the level of specificity at which courts think about rights, right? So. Um, we're going to tell you if you have a right as a police officer to participate right. in a racist parade. Like that's, that's going to be listed there in the document. <laughs> you know, if if you got that specific, um, then maybe I'd, maybe I'd agree that, you know, there's no space ever to sort of look outside of the document. Right. And, and, and so if you need to amend that, you just go and amend it to, to, and, and decide what, what, what we the public think about this new scenario that we've, but that's not how our constitution works. That's not how most constitutions work. Uh, And instead, we've got things like equal protection and due process of law and abridging the freedom of speech. Um, And those are not and that, you know, that those three provisions cover, you know, almost all of the rights conflicts that we actually have. Um, uh, And and those don't lend themselves to um, some kind of fixed interpretation. Right. They announce um, principles that are supposed to guide the government and so insofar as they announce a set of principles you know i don't think prince i don't think it's in the nature of principles to be frozen in time i think it's in the nature of principles that we as we learn as a society as we evolve as a society as we debate as a society those principles evolve too um and i think i think it's fair to say this is consistent with a jack balkan let's say a certain kind of originalist on well, his account okay um that um that you know the Constitution tells us to take into consideration public opinion. Now, public opinion again is—it's it, deri- be derisive to say that it, it's a Gallup poll or something like that, right? There are other ways at which we, through which we acknowledge what, how, how the people of this country think about these principles. We look at legislation, you know, we look at prosecutions, or we look at, um, uh, we look at writings from influential people. You know, we, we look at art. You know, we look at lots of things to figure out what our constitutional culture is. And I think we, I think judges have an obligation to pay some attention to that.
0: So as regular listeners of this podcast know, I'm obligated to mention retired Judge Posner at least once a podcast. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to do that now. Um, so, you know, two things Posner said that I'm wondering how you would react to. I think one is, one is, Pretty simple. Constitutional law, um, he said, is not about logic and text and law really. It's about taste and values. And he's and, and and way he put way he put that was when somebody says I like a margarita better than a cosmopolitan. I'm sorry, strike that. When somebody says a cosmopolitan is a margarita is better than a cosmopolitan, what they're really saying is I like margaritas better than cosmopolitan. In my classes, I always say is Godfather 1 better than Godfather 2? Answer, yes. But what I really mean is I like Godfather 1 more than Godfather 2. And he says that's true about abortion and capital punishment and, and a million other constitutional law issues. So I'm, I'm curious your reaction to that. And then the second part of it, which is related, is he thinks it's really all about creation at the Supreme Court level. He, he, he absolutely recognized precedent, vertical precedent, and he hated Heller, but he struck down an Illinois gun law. He respected precedent. But at the Supreme Court level, he said it's just creation, and calling it interpretation is wrong. It's not what they're doing. And I'm curious what your reactions are to both of those points.
1: So so first I agree that Godfather 1 is better than Godfather 2. <laughs> Yay! Good. We, <laughs> can, we can fight that fight together. Um, uh, on, so I, I, don't, I don't know that I – so I, I'm with Judge Posner in saying that interpretation – is, is, the, is not quite the right language to think about how to resolve conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, that interpretation is is, is, a, is a legal abstraction, right? It's it, it presupposes that there is a text and that the text properly interpreted tells us how to answer questions. And I think that that's emphatically untrue <laughs> for a, a very wide range of things that we disagree about when it comes to US constitutional law. Not everything, right? But I think there are some things that the text pretty well pretty well establishes. But most of what we disagree about, especially in the rights space, uh, the text doesn't, doesn't doesn't get us very far. And so we're doing something else when we resolve those disputes. Um, whether to call it creation or, or to say that it's, um, that it's purely based in, in values. I, I, I suppose if you said that one of those values is um, is adherence to a certain style of argument, Um, I might agree. Right. So and here's where where Richard Posner and I uh, differ is um, and and maybe he would get to the same place through a a different avenue. Right. But uh, but I really I I think that the practice of constitutional law is is by and large the practice of arguing about problems in a certain way. Um, And so as opposed to arguing about abortion rights by saying, my God is better than yours or by saying, you know, I believe in fetal rights and you don't um arguing about it through um a set of materials um some of which is text and and history uh, but those don't get us very far in with this particular kind of issue a lot of it is precedent right so um the thing that makes judges interesting um and different from politicians is, is right that they decide a case and then the case is decided and so um and so unless you have some very extraordinary reason you don't um you don't go back and, and, and revisit the, the old cases. And you, you navigate the law as it is. And the law as it is includes the prior decisions. And the way you talk about it is to say, is is this consistent with Casey, et cetera? Now, I think there are some ways in which that ends up being reductivist and problematic. right? So I, I do think that the way in which we should develop the case law is by reference to certain kinds of consequences and certain kinds of burdens and costs and so forth but i don't i don't not believe in precedent right i do think that courts should pay attention to to what they've said in the past uh it's just uh, i have a different different view about how they should you know, what 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 kinds of factors should be relevant in developing the law in particular directions but 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 there are there is a difference right between the way that courts should talk about these things and the way that politicians should talk about these things and and i don't know that you know, Posner might say, yes, yes, there is, but only because otherwise people wouldn't listen to courts. And so, um, <laughs> so there are kind of instrumental reasons why courts should do that. He would say,
0: Jamal, he would say that exactly. He said it to me many times. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So um, yeah. I don't know if I'm quite there, um, right. uh, but, uh, but, but the the fundamental insight that it's a, that it's a fiction. And I, I think a destructive fiction that we resolve sort of difficult rights conflicts through something that you could reasonably call interpretation. I think that's right.
0: Do, do you think um, – so I'm on record on this, and you won't be surprised where I stand on it. Do, do you think the Supreme Court cares about precedent in cases they care about? <laughs> Obviously, in cases they don't care about, sure, it's a work it's – a, it's a management <laughs> issue. But in cases that they emotionally you know, care about, do you really think they care about their own precedent?
1: i i do and i i mean i i think the supreme court is you know it's a they rather than an it so like sure. you know different i might say this differently about different members of the court mm-hmm. but there there are members of the court who i think quite transparently care about tra- precedent i mean john roberts i think very clearly cares about precedent um and you know there there are often and he's often criticized for you know you're really just trying to you know when you say And you think about his, you know, his highest profile cases, um, Shelby County, Mm -hmm. where he moves the law in very significant ways, but does it after only after um, trying to kind of slow down um, in uh, the the case that preceded it to say, like, look, we're going to make a big change. You've got to do it slowly. We've got to we've got to build up our precedents. Um, uh, Same thing with Citizens United, which where he didn't he wasn't he didn't write the majority opinion, but right uh, but there is an earlier case, you know, Wisconsin Right to Life, an earlier case where they could have um, overruled and he tries to go narrow because he, he doesn't want to move the law too quickly. There's June, June Medical, um, obviously, where, of course, he does say some things that suggest that the law is going to change. and you know, he wants the law to change in a particular more conservative direction, but you know, he's he votes to... to, but, to but Jamal, to, on
0: the, all those cases... I'm sorry to interrupt. On all those cases... Yeah. The, the, and those are big cases, right? That's the Voting Rights Act. That's abortion. Yeah. That's campaign finance reform. Um, I'm just going to self-promote here. I have an article out in Washington and Lee just recently saying that y- what you just said, he, he cares about precedent some and moves slowly and incrementally. And, of course, that's the conventional wisdom. Um, I don't agree with that. I think it's all hubris, and I give my evidence in that article. But... What I want to ask you is, um, do you think it's about precedent or do you think about he cares about perceptions of the court? Those aren't the same things or maybe they are the same thing. I don't know. Well, I,
1: I think they serve the same ends. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't think it's the case and this is a very important point, right? I don't think that, I don't think that, I I think the constitution can be interpreted in ways that lead in conventionally conservative directions. And also in ways that lead in conventionally progressive directions and have have both of those interpretations be faithful interpretations of the Constitution. Right. I, I, I it's it's part it's it, it sort of baked into my views about constitutional law right. that that has to be true. Uh, and so insofar as that's true, you know, we pick judges through a political process. Um, we pick judges through a political process because for reasons we've talked about earlier, right, because we actually want them to reflect the society from <laughs> in some way. And that's a that's a that's a feature, not a bug, right, of our system. That they're not totally external from society. And I think I don't think you can at one can ask of them that they not move the law in the direction for for which they were selected to move the law. Um I think we can reasonably ask of them that they do it slowly, that they do it with some attention to the norms of judicial practice.
0: See, I don't I don't think Roberts think, does that, but we'll move on from that. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can we can argue about whether he yeah. whether he does it or not. Yeah. Right. But but um, but I think that's something to be to be commended, even if it's moving in a in a in a reliably or identifiably conservative direction. And I'd say the same thing about progressive judges. Right. If sure. uh, I, you know, I, I I'm I'm a progressive, like, I want to see progressive outcomes. <laughs> I don't think it's bad for progressive judges to seek out progressive outcomes. Right. I do think they should do it slowly in general.
0: What what should lay people make of the following argument that I that you know I often make, which is that let's just take let's just take um, Alito and Ginsburg and Souter. Um, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg I think is an American hero as a litigator. She changed America. She changed gender rights. She deserves all the honors and awards she could get, you know, for that contribution to our country and to equality. As a Supreme Court justice, she voted progressive or liberal 98% of the time in big cases. Um, justice Alito, I don't think, uh, has he ever voted liberal? I know, maybe, but I mean, obviously he votes conservative. You know, he, even Scalia voted much more liberal than Alito has done in his yes. career. Um, and, and and then we talk about a Souter or a White or Stevens even in the earlier part of his career, certainly, who are more moderate. And therefore, their results are mixed. You know, um, Justice Stevens was in the dissent in Texas versus Johnson. That's the flag burning case. I think a lot of people were surprised that he voted, he dissented in that in that case. Um, so we have an incredibly liberal justice um, person, excuse me, voting liberal almost all the time. We have incredibly conservative Justice Alito, voting conservative almost all the time. And then we have Souter, White, Blackman, Stevens, who went back and forth. And it's my thesis that's because of their values they brought to the court which are extraneous to text and history of the constitution. What should lay people make of that? If I'm right, if you agree with my account.
1: I I mean, I, I, I think that your account is basically right. Um, and I, I think I agree with it. I, I have to think more about the specifics, but I think Mm -hmm. I agree with it. And I think, I think that's a system, generally speaking, that's a system that can work. Um, now, I don't think one can say in the abstract that, you know, someone who votes the conservative position every time and someone who votes the progressive position every time is 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 necessarily acting within bounds in all those cases. I don't think I think one has to look at the specific cases Fair enough. Uh, because I do think again, I do think there are norms of judicial behavior. I think we can I think they're intelligible. I think we can argue about them. Uh, and and identify people as as flouting them or not flouting them and the same is true of the people in the middle by the way sure I mean, being in the middle just for the sake of being in the middle, which um, I think some people sometimes accuse Justice O'Connor of doing yes um, is I think not always great um, uh, but but the fact that there's the very fact that there is a range of values among justices and that and they bring those values to the project of resolving. Big public law disputes. I think is a triumph for democracy. I think it stops being a triumph at the point at which you can't. They're not doing something that's identifiably different from what politicians do. And I, I don't know that I I would say where we've historically been at that point. Um, partly because, partly because I and this goes back to what I said in defense of John Roberts is that, or in qualified defense of John yeah. Roberts, which is that, which is that time is really important in develop in in politics. Um, If it takes 20 years to get from point A to to point Z, um, that's really very different from it taking 20 days to get from point A to point Z. There are a lot of points of intervention, a lot of veto points, a lot of room for argumentation and redirection over a 20-year period. Um, And and that's I think that that's really constituent. That's what the court brings, right? right? It's not that it brings some you know a distinctively legal perspective to you know these fraught political debates it's that it gives us time to decide them and it gives us time to decide them because it observes certain norms of of gradualism and certain norms of framing their debates in in somewhat orthogonal terms uh, so I, I so i and i think there are better ways of them giving us time by the way like i think that they, the, way the the way they think about remedies I, I think there should be more more explicit dialogue between courts and legislatures. But part of it is, part of my reason for thinking that is that the the thing that courts, the benefit that courts have, the benefit of judicial review, is that it slows down evulsive political change. Uh, And that's really valuable in a pluralistic society.
0: So so one more kind of general question about your work and your book, and then I I want to do a lightning round of current events, if you don't mind, because you're you're, you're a thoughtful (laughs) observer of current events. And um, I didn't mention it, but you've published op-eds in all the major newspapers and stuff. So I do want to get to that. But... um, you know, other courts have specialized constitutional courts, uh, where, where, they, where where I assume the judges are picked for a set of skills other than simply lawyering skills. The, Justice Roberts was a great lawyer. I think we can all, at least all accounts of him, are that he was a, just an excellent lawyer, and, and there have been other examples of that. Other countries do have very different confirmation processes, and I think they look for other values in their specialized constitutional courts. Would you? I, I, we may have to amend the Constitution or not. I don't know, but I, I'm not sure we would. But leaving that aside, would you be in favor of of kind of separating the court's functions, statutory interpretation, arguably maybe diversity over there, constitutional law over here, and having different people do different things?
1: Well, I, I would say that I would I would I would want to re- revise our, con- our our confirmation process if we if yeah. we did that. Yeah. I, I will say. Here's a a plug for my my testimony to the to the Supreme Court Commission. Yes, um, which which suggested a number of ways of changing how we think about our court. Uh, the the what I would what I would like about that proposal is that it would force the court to be more self-conscious about its role as a different kind of institution. Yeah. Than an ordinary court, right? So that when we think about things like standing, when we think about things like political question. Um, doctrine. When we think about things like advisory opinions, right, th- there are there are a range of reasonable views about all of those things. But we should be thinking about those kinds of questions, in uh, understanding that they're being they're being answered by a a, a quasi political institution, right? Not one that is just the same as like the, the the common claims court that where you resolve your dispute over your toaster or something, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. I mean that that that. Marbury versus Madison, right, has a very specific conception of what judges are about, and and, and that's a conception that's born out of assuming that what ju- most of what judges do is like resolve disputes between debtors and creditors, yes. Um, as opposed to you know decide what the law is um, for everyone and second guess the legislature and second guess the president. Uh, and when when we're in that situation, it's an adjunct to other kinds of democratic processes, and we should structure it in a way that. Makes that clear, um, where we're not fooling ourselves about what kind of institution we're talking about. So, so I find that attractive. I don't know if I would just, you know, convert the court as it is, with all of its current structures and personnel, into that kind of court. But, but I do think that's an attractive self-conception.
0: You know, at the heart of the criticism of my work and my thesis that the court is not a court, people respond, "What you're really saying is it's a bad court," or "What you're really saying is it's a different kind of court." Um, and and when I, if I really want to be self-reflective you know, on this, I think what I am saying is we can call it a court if you want. But as you've been really articulate in saying today, it's a very different kind of court and a different mission than Fulton County Superior Court or, or the trial or even the New York Supreme Court or appellate courts or whatever. Right. It, 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 that's pretty clear, right? I mean that's
1: – Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and other, other countries that have separate constitutional courts explicitly recognize that. Right. Um, and, they, and they structure the procedures of that and the remedies of that court on that assumption.
0: Right. Okay. So, thank you. That, that's awesome stuff. Let me, let me just go through a quick litany of, uh, of current events. So, last week, of course, was the big abortion argument in, in the Dobbs case, and Roberts did two things. I, I know one of which you probably like, is he referred to other countries and what they do, and maybe we should take that into account as a general matter. Um, we already talked about that. I could not believe that three times he referred to the private papers of Justice Blackmun to suggest that Blackmun thought that the um, viability line was arbitrary, even though it turns out, as I think Linda Greenhouse wrote last week and and others have written, that that was a very preliminary memo that he signed on to Roe, of course, he wrote Roe, he, he signed on to Casey, he signed on to the viability line. What do you think about, why would Roberts... Why would Roberts do that? It's, it seems I don't know if I've ever remembered a Supreme Court justice during oral argument referring to the private papers of one of the people on the court.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm. I guess I'm not too bothered by it I, at oral argument. I mean, I. Right. So one of the things I would do with I. I think oral argument's too short. I would have oral <laughs> argument be like four days long right. rather than, rather than a few minutes, so that we could. Re- and, and so, it, it, from that perspective, I think I like open conversation right and if the if the argument is over whether viability is a is an arbitrary line or not i don't think it is an arbitrary line but if if one were to if one's arguing about that and one of the things in your arsenal is you know the guy who invented it thought it was an arbitrary line i, I wouldn't say you're sort of not allowed to refer to that um, that that said you know i um uh, i you know i i, I, I I'm. I, I wouldn't. To your first point about him referring to foreign yeah. law, I, I, I do. I do think we should pay attention to what others do when they're faced by with, with similar problems, right? And, right? and It's not like only the U.S. has struggled with how to think about abortion rights. Um, but the kind of selective, you know, if you're not someone who really um, has has deep knowledge about what's happening in a foreign jurisdiction, if you're in fact in most instances not committed to not taking it into consideration i think you're then kind of stopped from saying oh well but we're going to pull this or sort of one thing <laughs> right out of you know if, if you say like yeah we look at foreign law and bring on the briefs like so we can actually right. dig into this that's one thing but if you say you know don't as you said it is confirmation here we don't pay attention to foreign law oh but now <laughs> now that i see this one fact that i, I find right. helpful um, without any context of the surrounding facts that are also relevant to this question. Uh, that that I would object to.
0: Okay. Um, what do you think of Justice Barrett's, I think, three, I could be wrong about that, but I think three questions or statements that the uh, greater availability of adoption today um, undermines some of the rationales of Roe and Casey. And I ask that knowing that you think that's the kind of question that might be relevant, and in, 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 it's not a textual question, it's not a historical question, it's kind of a part of the many, many factors smart people have to think about when going through different perspectives on abortion, but I'm just curious what you thought of that line of questioning.
1: So I was surprised by it, yeah. I, I will say that. We all were. Um, <laughs> um, and I was surprised by, so let me, let me just say that I think that, if, that in a... If one, if one were to write an opinion that said that the reason why uh, abortion rights can be limited is because people can just give up their kids for adoption after they're born. If that's what you were to rest on, I would say that that's um, I, I would be heavily, highly critical, yes. of, to, yes. to say the least, yes. uh, of, of that reasoning. I think it, it's it's insufficiently, horrifically insensitive yeah. to the to the burdens of of Unwanted pregnancies, to the burdens of of pregnancy in general, the burdens of childbirth, to the burdens of actually giving birth to a human being, and then what that means emotionally for someone. I I, I will not assume, and so I, so I, I would have wanted her to give a little more context um, to yes. that kind of question, yeah. given the reasonable inferences one can draw about why she was asking it. Right. That that said, I I I I'll wait for the opinion. Fair
0: enough. Fair on, enough. Yeah.
1: before i before i pile on on that um given that uh, it's it's part of part of the job of a person or, or an argument to, to probe the, the limits of an argument and 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 i i'll i'll just chalk it up to maybe not seeing how it, how it would be perceived uh, unless and until i see an opinion that 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 shows the deficiencies that i think we're all rightly worried about
0: I was going to move on, but the last point you made is really interesting. Um, One of my pet peeves um, of the last five years is that I know Amy Coney Barrett uh, a little bit, and and I've always had very positive interactions with her, and by all accounts, I think most people would say she's a very nice, decent person in person anyway. When she was nominated to the Seventh Circuit, I made the point. I I, I may even have included you in this. I don't know, but I, I think I did. I made the point that there are so many law professors. She was, she was a law professor at Notre Dame, for people who don't know. Um, she was relatively very young, um, you know, for, for, to become a judge. Um, and uh, she had very little practical experience. Um, and I made the point that there were hundreds of law professors with resumes longer than hers. Be- by, when better, I mean just, you know, more books, more articles, more... Um, and, I, and she was somewhat inexperienced to go from that job to the Seventh Circuit, knowing that she was going to be in the Supreme Court if someone if if someone left, which of course happened, to Justice Ginsburg, um, and 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 the hope that whole idea of putting this this relatively inexperienced lawyer, very experienced law professor, but then a judge for only a couple years before they get to the Supreme Court. Um, it just really disturbed me. I I, I didn't. I, I think we can look at Ginsburg or even Roberts and say, look, Roberts is, was known as one of the great lawyers in America. He was. He was known for that. Um, you know, even Scalia, who you know I can't stand, he had a reputation, an intellectual reputation, not deserved, but he had it before he got to the court. She doesn't have any of that. Other than she's a really nice, thoughtful person. Well, there are a lot of really nice, thoughtful people out there. I'm, and and I think she did. And the reason I'm saying this to you is you triggered me by saying she didn't. She might not have expected the reaction she got to what she might have thought was kind of an innocent line of questioning, and that's important, I think. I, especially now that it's being audio, live streamed on the audio. I don't know. I, I guess I'm asking you to react to all of that. I, I don't know what you can say. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I think that's. I think. I think everything you say is fair. I mean, okay. and I. I don't. I've only interacted with her some, yeah. um, as a law professor, not not much at all. Uh-huh. Um, and my my impressions are the same as yeah. yours are. Um, uh, and it's for sure the case that there are more more experienced people who could have been nominated uh, I, I wouldn't take that too far in too far as that's always the sort of the case um uh, but but you're you're right she's she was picked it seems to me that she was picked mostly because she's young and smart and uh, was believed to be a reliable vote on this specific issue yeah um abortion rights and is conservative um uh, right so um I, I i actually tend to think you know my reaction to that is that that's a, actually a little bit risky <laughs> for for the people on the right um, <laughs> right insofar as you pick someone anytime you pick an academic um and one who's not who was not known for being a a, a flamethrower thrower right. as an academic you know i don't i don't know what amy coney Parrott's views are on a whole range of issues um, that are important to a bunch of people on the right. Um, uh, I have a sense of what her views about abortion rights are, but I also know that she's someone who at least thinks carefully about precedent um, and has not said, you know, you just overrule whatever you want. Um, so I, I think there. I think it, just stepping outside of, you know, the progressive conservative, just, just as an observer of political behavior, um, I, I think there are a lot of risks. I mean, for, for a party that's devoted its Supreme Court strategy to no more suitors. Um, right. Not that she's going to be David Souter, but, but, but you know, uh, you, there are people you could pick who would be very, who I, where I'd be very sure exactly what they would think on a whole range of issues. And her, I'm, I just don't know. Maybe people know things that I that I don't know, which is certainly possible.
0: So you don't have to react to this because I'm going to say something very controversial, so you don't have to react <laughs> to it. But I suspect her very deep, and this is a known fact, her very deep-seated Faith, which I'm not, I'm not criticizing at all. Um, but she is a woman of deep, deep, deep faith. Um, I think that makes it less likely for her to um, change her mind over time on important issues. You're not to react to that, but that's just my prediction. Souter, um, White, Blackman, Stevens—I I don't know how religious those those four people were, but I'm guessing far less so than Alito and 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 Scalia and Barrett. And that that that's. I know that's very controversial, but it, it, I think it, that. Yeah, I mean,
1: whether or not that's whether or not that's right. I mean, I, I wasn't really making a point about the likelihood that she might change her mind. Right. It was more that I don't know what her mind says to right. her right now. Right. Right. So, like, do okay. do I know what she thinks about, like, anti-commandeering doctrine? You know, I can guess. <laughs> um, right. Right. But you know, do it? Do, does is it obvious that someone with her profile has a particular view on the non-delegation doctrine? I mean, again, I'm, I assume she does. Uh, I assume it's a conservative view, or closer right. to where the. Con- but I don't know that for sure. Right? That's fair, um, Comple- completely. Right fair. And, you know, or criminal justice issues, where she could, you know, where her faith might lead her in different directions. Right. right. So who knows?
0: So let's um, let's end um, with this. Um, people know I wrote a book called Originalism Is Faith. I think you're cited in that book more than any other academic. I could be wrong, but I've certainly your work on originalism com- really influenced that book and my personal journey through originalism, um, and you've written too many articles, but one of them, and I want everybody who's listening to this, who's interested in originalism, to read this article. It's called The Selling of Originalism, and you wrote it a while back. Um, I think it is one of the smartest pieces on a topic that has been overwritten by me and everybody else for the last 25 years. I- is there a way to to kind of quickly summarize the th- your thesis in that piece? Um, maybe that's too hard a question to ask. You know, I know you wrote it a long time ago, um, but it's a great piece.
1: Well, I I appreciate that. It was my job talk piece, so so uh, as with everyone's job talk piece, I I now cringe when I think about it, right? So, you shouldn't,
0: because it's great.
1: But I, I I appreciate that the 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 basic, I mean, the basic thesis, was a kind of two part thesis. One, as I recall, <laughs> I haven't read it in a while, but um, but one one being that part of the appeal of originalism, is that it's 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 easier to package. Um, it, it makes more intuitive sense to people who haven't necessarily thought deeply about right. uh, the problems that constitutional interpretation and construction present, um, uh, and it um, I don't know if I said this exactly in in that piece or in others, but uh, but it, it taps into um, certain deeper values that we have around the founding as well um, that go beyond sort of law in a narrow sense, but 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 tap into how we feel about america uh, as a project. But there was a second piece of it which is and when we th- and when when we think about interpretation, theories of interpretation, those are actually good features of the theory of interpretation. So that um, that from a progressive perspective um, at the time, you know, progressives were big on popular constitutionalism. Yes. Right and and so and, and if, you know, if we think that law can evolve through social movements and through political movements, adopting their own visions, that an interpretive method can be part of that. And, and so the way in which the, those who have supported originalism, starting with you know, the mid-1970s through the early 1980s and the Reagan Justice Department and the Federalist Society, that those people were engaged in popular constitutionalism. Um, and that there's nothing in about an interpretive method that sort of takes it out of that space, and and that so if, if liberals want to respond to originalism, it's not it's not enough to simply say it's wrong for X, Y, and Z reasons. And now I'll publish that in the Columbia Law Review. Um, <laughs> you, you know you've got you've got to get out and sell your method, um, and that that's actually a sort of a totally legitimate, totally time honored way of engaging in, uh, in 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 this project of constitutional. Uh, evolution.
0: Right. I, I, I think one of the things you said in that article that I picked up on and I then um, kind of went, went further on in my book is that also originalism is different things to different people. And, and that's a really important point. To the Sean Hannity's and, and Fox News, you know, correspondents who mouth the words, they have no idea what they're talking about. And it's, it's a political label. But to academics who think deeply about these issues, that's why I called it originalism as faith. As opposed to something else, they really believe it. I think I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm not suggesting bad faith on their part. And then to the justices, I think it depends. I, I think some act in bad faith on it, and some don't. Um, and I think that your article touches on those things as as well. That that it's not just one thing. It's a lot of different things, and it's different things to different people. Um, is that fair? Is that a fair account? Yeah,
1: no, that's 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 totally fair. It's a it's a family of things, and yeah. it's a family of things that are united by a certain set of values. Yeah. <laughs> um. Right. They're not united by something jurisprudential. Right. right. So I, I always think back to Justice Scalia in his very well-known book, A Matter of Interpretation, in which he said, you know, the great debate in interpretation is between, you know, old meaning and present meaning. It's not between intent and, or, you know, intent and meaning. Right. And I, that's always struck me as a, an interesting because you, you leave the United States and, you know, everywhere you go, that's the main divide between intent is in statutory interpretation you know intent versus meaning is a very significant right. difference right interpretively um it's a, it's a hugely important difference but it doesn't become it's not a difference if it doesn't matter right if it, if it's just a matter of you sort of aligning your you aligning yourself with some basically conservative set of values you're aligning yourself against against progressive change um then yeah they are this they are kind of you, it doesn't really matter whether it's intent or, or meaning because right. you because it's not a it's not a theory of jurisprudence, right? It's a
0: right.
1: it's something else. And I, where I've, elsewhere, I've called it um, a, a form of ethical argument, which is following Philip Bobbitt. Yeah, uh, who, who characterized a certain style of argument that taps into our character as a as a people, um, as a, a form of interpretation. And originalism really fits that. Right. You're saying something about are we a progressive people or are we a people that are tied to a particular set of points in the past? And that aligns with standard progressive conservative debates in politics. Uh, And so that that connection has been drawn by the purveyors of originalism. And, you know, tying your method to our values is something progressives could learn a lesson from.
0: Yes, that and selling progressivism better. I'm waiting someday for your piece, (laughs) The Selling of Progressive... Politics or something like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Jamal, thank you so much for doing this. This has been just uh, wonderful. I, I'm going to hold it up again for the YouTube folks. This is a really good book. Um, people should read it. How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. And I say it's a really good book, even though I think I want judges to do much less than you want them to do. Um, but that's a reasonable disagreement and doesn't in any way take away from the enormous value of this book. So, so, so thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you, Eric. Uh, It's really been a pleasure.
0: Great.